It's not unusual for us to talk about difficult and really sad topics on this show, and this episode on suicide in Ohio is no different. I'll state the obvious. Too many Ohioans are suffering, many mostly in silence, and we lose far too many to suicide each year as a result. Suicide is one of those issues that was deeply concerning long before the arrival of COVID-19, as our guest will explain, but also one of the many areas that we worry the pandemic may have intensified, with mass unemployment, isolation, fear, and just a general fragmentation of our social bonds. But you don't need a pandemic to know that American culture, compounded by the often paltry social supports we provide in our state, often falls short. As a result, too many Ohioans don't think that they have options and can't see past the immediate and crushing pain they're feeling. On this week's episode, we talk with Orman Hall, who's one of Ohio's preeminent experts on mental health, addiction, and suicide, and who is a collaborator on an important new study on suicide in Ohio. This is Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. Hey folks, it's good to have you back, especially at a time when there's no shortage of stories to follow in the news and anxiety and even fear remains really high, whether it's COVID-19, the high stakes of the upcoming election, or something else. Last week, we talked about some of the difficult concerns out there about restaurants and bars, with the state trying to strike the right balance, but I think it's important that we don't miss the forest for the trees. This moment we're in is hard, and it's likely to be so for some time. There isn't a single actor or entity in our state that we can afford to just draw a hard line on and move on. But rather, we need to think about what people around our state are struggling with and what their challenges are. Beyond the physical dangers posed by COVID-19, it's also a massive social crisis with consequences for mental health, addiction, domestic upheaval and violence, and even suicide. What's especially important to keep in mind about what Orman Hall has to say about the work he and his colleagues have done on suicide in Ohio is that their data are all from a pre-COVID-19 period. So while we can speculate about where we are now with it, we can assume that things are even more precarious since the stressors are even worse. So while you're going to want to hear what Orman has to say about what we know about suicide trends in Ohio, I also hope you'll be encouraged by the fact that we have dedicated people like Orman and his colleagues working on this issue, and that they're really trying hard to get to the root of the problem. As always, before turning to my conversation with Orman Hall, I'd like to remind you to please subscribe to Prognosis Ohio wherever you get your podcasts, and consider following us on Twitter and other social media. If you have ideas for show themes or interviews, or just want to take issue or share a thought with something that you heard on the show, don't hesitate to email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. We like conversation and we like disagreement, so please don't hesitate to reach out if there's something on your mind. Also, check out our new website at prognosisohio.com, and while you're there, consider becoming a Prognosis Ohio Patreon for $3 a month. Thanks so much to the new Patreons we've had in the last week or so, whose support is helping to defray the cost of SoundCloud and a few other programs one needs to get a podcast out there. We'd appreciate a few more listeners joining this group of supporters so we can continue to grow the show. Visit patreon.com slash prognosisohio to chip in $3 a month and become a Prognosis Ohio Patreon. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. Today's guest, Orman Hall, has broad experience in the management of public behavioral health services, including 21 years as director of the Fairfield County Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Board, and four years as a state cabinet-level official overseeing the funding and development of addiction treatment services for the state of Ohio. 
More recently, for the past few years, Orman has served as an executive in residence for Ohio University's College of Health Sciences and Professions. And finally, as though Orman doesn't have enough on his plate already, he also recently became a councilman at large for the city of Lancaster, Ohio. So he's currently filling out his distinguished resume by adding elected official to his list of accomplishments. We're really honored to have him on the show today. Before turning to Orman to hear about his important collaborative research on suicide in Ohio, I want to mention that if you or someone you know is considering suicide, you can always reach a compassionate, trained professional to talk with, with complete confidentiality 24-7 in multiple languages, by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. We'll also be sharing these resources in our show notes and on social media. Okay, now to our conversation with Orman Hall. Orman Hall, thanks so much for joining me on the show to talk about this really important research you've done on suicide in Ohio. Dan, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. So as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're here to talk about an important, a difficult subject, um, suicide, uh, and the study that you did. Uh, you compiled it in collaboration with um, officials from the Mental Health and Addiction Advocacy Coalition, the Ohio Alliance for Innovation and Population Health, and the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation. I know that's a lot of organizations. Uh, I'll be linking to them so people can kind of like read a little bit more on them. But this is a huge effort that you've undertaken. Um, the key finding, at least as it jumps out to me, is that in 37 of Ohio's 88 counties, um, many of which are rural with poor access to health care, um, are above the national averages in terms of suicide rates. And, you know, I wanted to start by just having you talk a little bit about the report, its findings, and kind of, you know, the big picture of it. Um, I, I'd be happy to do that. Well, first of all, I would like to express my appreciation to the Ohio Department of Health for making identified mortality data available to us for uh, the purposes of analysis. So the the study itself uh, spanned a 10-year period from 2009 uh, through 2018. And essentially what we found uh, was that during uh, that period, there were uh, approaching 16,000 suicides, again, over the span of the study and, and across the state. And that during that period, we saw about a 34% increase in suicides from the beginning to the um, the beginning year to the end year. From the standpoint of looking at most vulnerable populations, the biggest increase, at least among those age groups where we had significant numbers of people who were completing suicide, um, was surprisingly among um, those persons 60 and older. About half of all of the uh, fatalities were. Uh, related to uh, to gun to guns, and uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, southeastern Ohio, um, which is um, all rural, um, was the uh, area or the part of our state uh, that had the highest rates of suicide overall. So I'm trying to you know think about the, the the time period that you're looking at here, and one of the things that kind of popped in my head was the Great Recession. Um, as a kind of beginning point of this period. But, you know, I'm curious if you were surprised by these findings uh, and to what do you attribute them? I'm sure it's multiple things, but what are some of the things that are going on in the background that is probably driving some of these data? You know, it that's um, that's an interesting question. And, and and I guess the other piece of all of this, uh, the, the Great Recession was, uh, you know, started uh, in 2008 
and was essentially ending around the time that we started our study. And even with the Great Recession uh, being at the at the beginning, we still saw a thirty four percent increase in suicides during a period of time when the economy was improving. Uh, and that's a factor that I hadn't really considered until you just now mentioned the Great Recession. Uh, so that is a, um, I think that's an element of the story that we need to unpack, that we need to understand a little better. Yeah, because it's so easy to point to economic data, and, and I'm going to come to that in a minute, because obviously we're in a different moment now that's, you know, your study, the data doesn't capture, but I'm sure frames your thinking about it. But there is a question of just a kind of culture around completing suicide or attempting suicide, um, you know, that I wonder uh, how that works. And, you know, I'm a political scientist, so I don't understand or really study or think about the, um, you know, the, the finer grained kind of cultural things that are going on that might be in the background there. You mentioned guns. Obviously, that's going to be a big part of the story. Um, but were you surprised at all? Was this what you expected? Did you even expect anything? I mean, did you go into this with a, a kind of sense of, you know, this is, I mean, obviously you did this study because you thought that suicide was an issue that needed to be looked at. But what was your, your and the team's kind of internal thinking about um, why this was important to do? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question too. I, I don't know that I, was, that I was surprised overall because prior to uh, doing the analysis of Ohio data, um, I, um, I did take the time to sit down and look at uh, the national data. Um, and as, as you indicated, we do have a number of counties that have um, suicide rates that are higher than national average, but we also have a number of counties that have rates that are lower than national average. And, and to be honest, I was um, apprehens- apprehensive. I thought maybe our suicide rates would be higher than what they were. Um, so um, uh, again, I don't know that I was overly surprised, but there are definitely some some interesting and um, uh, divergences in the data and some troubling findings that um, that really require some attention here in our state. So as a transplanted New Yorker, now 10 years in Ohio, one of the things I was struck by when I first came here to the state was the extraordinary differences from county to county in all sorts of different kinds of areas, you know, and I think your study reminded me of that again, um, not just in terms of health outcomes, but, you know, and, and as you know, I mean, uh, I've done some work on the opioid issue as well. I, I experienced this, you know, who your sheriff is really matters, where you get arrested really matters in terms of addiction and the judicial system. And these kinds of stories really fan out a lot of it uh, through counties. But you find huge disparities in terms of suicide prevention funding on the county level. I wonder if you are honing in on that being a kind of key piece of this story. That's a great question. And I, I claim no special expertise in terms of the types of assets and resources that are available throughout the, uh, the state. That, was, that portion of the study was actually conducted uh, by the Mental Health um, an addiction advocacy coalition, but but you're absolutely right. Um, the disparities in terms of available resources are stark, and uh, essentially uh, the the types of interventions and the kind of supports that are available um, around Ohio are uh, dramatically variable. Um, and we do need to figure out uh, how to do a better job of making sure that 
those people who are contemplating suicide in communities that have very de minimis um, treatment services. Um, we've got to figure out how to better support those people. Just one more question on the fine-grained kind of you know findings here. You note in the in the summary for the study, which again we are going to be linking to in our show notes and social media. But you note that suicide rates continue to rise across all ages, races, and genders. Um, but as you know, you know uh, there are disparities in health and healthcare um, mortality data all, of all sorts. So I'm, I'm I wonder if that line aside, right? Are there some disparities? When you look into this data a little bit closer, um, is there any kind of racial or ethnic correlates that we might want to know about? You mentioned age as something that was kind of developing within this, but I wonder if you could unpack that for me a little bit. Sure, absolutely. So, so again, um, you, if when you look at um, suicide completions by age cohort, and you pretty much have to exclude the Ohioans under the age of 14 because they're very small numbers, so you can't really look at trends. But um, but when you look at the data for um, for persons uh, 60 and older, um, we see a more uh, we see a progression of um, of deaths that uh, that I think are uh, are, are troubling. Um, and then from the standpoint of other vulnerable populations or changes in uh, the data. Persons who, if you go back to the beginning of the study, uh, education wasn't uh, necessarily um, a, uh, an important predictor of the likelihood of suicide completion. But at the end of the study, there were uh, significant uh, and, and fairly dramatic differences between those persons who had uh, completed a college degree versus those people who... Um, had just a high, who had a high school uh, diploma or, or hadn't completed high school. So um, a, as we move through time, it would appear as though, um, it, I mean, if you can look at suicide as a sign of people being, uh, as, as a sign of different populations being under greater stress, it would appear as though those people who uh, have completed uh, college are under less maybe economic stress than those people that haven't. Likewise, when you look at marital status, um, people who are married are less likely uh, to complete suicide than those people who are separated um, and divorced. So there are markers in the data that point towards um, vulnerabilities um, among certain groups and certain populations in our state. So vulnerabilities that are you know in place already. I guess I want to raise one of the you know elephants in the room of this kind of research, right? In 2008, another thing that we heard a lot in 2008, 2009 was, and you saw a lot of media reports around the time when President Obama came into office, that there were these spikes in gun sales. I just want to put it to you. Do you sense that guns are maybe one of the most critical parts of the story? Uh, is gun violence driving this? You know, one of the things, one of the statistics that we found at the national level uh, that we considered putting in the study, but we didn't, um, is the, uh, the correlation, the relationship between gun ownership and suicides at, on the state-by-state -state level. So there was a national study, and uh, I'm not looking at the literature, so I can't quote it. I need to go back and, and find it. But there's about a 0.6 correlation um, between um, states that have 
uh, or uh, between gun ownership by state and suicides. So uh, yes, I think um, that gun ownership and the uh, the accessibility or the availability of guns is um, is an important indicator that um, that really needs uh, to be explored uh, more than what it has been. So and, and then the other piece of all of this. Um, that we haven't mentioned yet is that males are about three times more likely to complete suicide than females. And the rate of uh, males completing with guns is much higher than, than females completing with guns. So uh, yes, I, I do think that, um, that guns are an important part of the study uh, that, um, that really deserves more attention than maybe what it's gotten in the national media. So it is, that, that's, that's an important piece and a great question. Yeah, one of the reasons I ask, you know, a few months back, we had on this show these two really amazing high school students from Ohio Students for Gun Legislation, you know, and that was one of their main points. Um, and I encourage listeners to go check it out. These students were just amazing um, and they do great work. But, you know, th- they wanted to change the discussion to say, look, there's so much focus on school shootings. And of course, those are important. They're, uh, you know, <laughs> they change the narrative. Um, and they're just horrifying to watch, but below that was just the role, the role of guns, um, and the increased gun ownership levels, or the number of guns, or the security and safety of guns around suicide. And these students felt like that was getting short shrift, but actually, among their peers, that was the narrative that was the most important one, even though it doesn't always fan out that way in terms of its media appearance. You know, that, that is, it's a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, one of the things, by the way, we um, completed a, um, a gun violence monograph uh, shortly after the Dayton uh, and the Texas events that occurred last, uh, late last summer. And, um, and that is precisely true. There, there is tremendous national attention and angst around um, mass um, gun violence. And um, when, when you step back and look at the data, uh, there are, um, a, there, there's a significantly higher number of people who are losing their lives to suicides and guns than, um, than people who are losing their lives to mass gun violence. Uh, and I, I certainly don't want to um, diminish or discount um, the the severity of that problem. But if we're looking at a loss of life, um, then suicide completions by firearm, um, are, you know, account for more uh, lost lives uh, than than mass gun violence. And one of the reasons why that came about, uh, that conversation during this time was because of COVID-19 and students being home, right? And and there was a kind of discussion that you saw out there saying, you know, isn't it amazing that there haven't been any school shootings because schools were closed, right? And students were taking note of this, this fact that that was one aspect of schools being closed that uh, was just at least worth noting culturally. But then again, that shifts the question, well, what about all these students who are, who are at home, um, who are isolated, who are fragmented and lonely, and, and, and how does that relate to the question of attempting or completing suicide? I wonder if I can get you just to talk for a moment about the COVID question, because your data caps at 2018, and we know that you know not only has COVID brought about new waves of loneliness and isolation, 
But we also have a massive spike in unemployment. And I know that comes out in your study as well, that unemployment really drives this sense of hopelessness and hopelessness leads to um, suicide attempts. Uh, So can you situate the study in the current moment a little bit for us? You you know, um, I want to be careful and not opine about data that I don't have, but it it certainly makes logical and, and intuitive sense uh, that when the dust settles and we are able to look at um, the um, the mortality data um, for the period that covers the pandemic, that we will see elevated numbers of suicides, um, overdoses, and other uh, behavioral health-related mortality and morbidity issues. And I guess I'm hopeful that, that we'll be able to sooner rather than later uh, have access to the data so that we can better understand what that what those phenomenon look like but but again um, for all of the reasons that that you just articulated you know the the degree to which people are under uh, financial stress the isolation that that they're experiencing um, specific to um, the pandemic those factors are likely to uh, to contribute to tremendous pressure that that would or or could result in uh, elevated levels of suicide and overdose activity. Yeah, and you're kind of gesturing towards a, another issue that, uh, as I mentioned before, I mean, I, I've done some work on um, the opioid issue, and I know, I mean, you have a long uh, career of, of being a leader in the state around issues uh, related to addiction. COVID aside, you know, there has been this question of, well, let me actually return to COVID for a minute, which is there has this been another concern, which is about addiction during COVID. And that again, linking back up with loneliness and isolation and um, hopelessness and all of those other risk factors. When you think about the data that you're looking at with regard to suicide over the period that you studied, how does that interact with the addiction question, the opioid crisis, but not just the opioid crisis, addiction generally? Well, that's that's a that's a really good question, and with, without giving away too much, because we're in the process of completing a a study that looks at the three disease entities that constitute uh, diseases of despair, which are suicide, um, overdoses, and uh, alcohol-related um, cirrhosis, uh, and and we're looking at it from two different perspectives. One is the total number of deaths, and then the other one is the number of years of lost life. And the reason that years of lost life is an important measure is um, because um, people who um, dramatically higher number of people dying from heart disease and cancer than than those people who are dying from behavioral health disorders. But um, but many of those people who die from cancer and heart disease. Um, are essentially dying from natural causes. They're dying in their late 70s and their early 80s. Most people who die from um, suicide completions or overdoses are dying in their 30s or early 40s. So um, what essentially what years of life loss um, does is it allows us to look at the difference between when somebody dies and when um, they when we should when they should have died based on the age on their age of death. So when you look at when you look at suicide for the ten year period, um, suicides accounted for five hundred thousand years of lost life over ten years. So if if people hadn't died from a suicide, 
um, collectively, collectively, the 16,000 people that died from suicide, if they had lived to a normal lifespan, um, then the state of Ohio would have recovered half a million years of productive life, 500,000 years that people could have been a part of their family life. I personally believe that that's a really important measure and maybe a more important measure than, than looking at the total um, number of deaths that, that were accounted for. But going back to overdoses, during that same period of time, um, overdoses accounted for a million years of lost life, Dan. So uh, again, when you look at it through that prism, um, behavioral health disor disorders are not, from my perspective, receiving the kind of policy attention and the kind of resources that we need to begin to mitigate the damage that, um, that suicides and overdoses and all of the problems that, that precipitate the, those kind of, the kind of crises that result in those types of deaths. So you nicely teed up my last question, really. And, you know, I appreciate that you're careful, um, you know, you don't want to uh, expound too much on things that fall outside of the data. And that's good. <laughs> of course, we need more of that in our country, in fact. But I do want to ask you about the policy side. What, the, the, the big question, what is to be done? I mean, do you have some just low-hanging fruit policy ideas in mind that, you know, we should be looking at right now or not even low-hanging fruit? Are there big structural changes that we need to be thinking about and I, here I'm thinking about the the difference from county to county, and obviously that that points to a role for the state, maybe even on the federal level. But what are you thinking about when you think about things that could ease some of the pain here, um, or at least start us down a road of of really getting at this issue? Well, that uh, those those are great questions, and it, and I think that we've sort of stumbled on or or we've talked about uh, some of the more important issues. Um, the, the fact that guns are so readily available to large numbers of people that, um, that might be thinking about suicide is, is problematic. I mean, is there a way that we can balance in our society um, the, um, the interest that many people have in, in using guns for sporting purposes on one hand, and then also... Um, you know, potentially making them less available or less accessible uh, to people who um, may intend to use them for purposes that they shouldn't be using them for. Um, so, uh, so developing or beginning to think through uh, how we can, um, uh, you know, affect the the gun element of suicide uh, strikes me as being really important and and potentially one of those low hanging fruits. And and I would say on the on the overdose side, um, one of the things that we're beginning to understand about overdoses and, and um, the trajectory on overdoses has been much greater than, than suicide, about a 160% increase in overdoses over a 10-year period. Um, you know, the lethality of the drugs that are available in the illicit drug market has, has changed uh, dramatically over the past several years. Uh, fentanyl accounts for um, more than 70% of the overdose deaths in our state. Mm -hmm. And fentanyl is maybe 20 times more likely to cause an overdose than heroin. And I'm not sure um, specifically what we need to do to make uh, fentanyl less available, but I, I do think that there are some policies that we might want to consider that might impact that problem. So there, there are... Um, 
definitely policy implications. Um, and and I, I'm sure we don't have enough time to unpack those issues, but there are policy implications. And I think there are, are data that, that could point us in the right direction on, on both of these topics. Well, you know, a research project uh, can only do so much in one piece. And, you know, before we started recording, you and I were talking about the importance of having future conversations around other other pieces that are inevitably going to come up here. But you've done with your colleagues um, in this broad collaborative effort, uh, a really amazing just first job doing, you know, pulling together the data so that we can start to realize the scope of the issue. And that, that was what really attracted me to the study and, you know, made me want to have you on to talk about it. So I appreciate the work you've done, uh, the work that you've done with your colleagues. And I also just want to say, um, I'm honored to have you as a colleague at Ohio University as well. So uh, that's a special piece to this. You know, Orman, I just want to thank you for taking some time to talk about the study and, um, you know, we'll have future conversations. I look forward to them. I think that sounds great. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today, Dan. Many thanks to Orman Hall for joining me on the show. You can read more about Orman and the research we discussed in the episode by checking out the show notes, which are posted on WCBE's webpage at wcbe.org under the podcast experience tab, as well as on our website at prognosisohio.com. Please also take a minute to look at the suicide prevention resources we've linked to there. Not only if you or someone you know is in need of them now, but it's always a good idea to know what kind of resources exist before you need them. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe, follow us on Twitter at, at Prognosis Ohio, friend us on Facebook, and check out our new website at prognosisohio.com. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback. Thanks so much for listening and be well.